Chapter 11 of The Key to the Riddle, A Story of Huguenot Days by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Milton versus Dante. The soiree at which Azrael Montu sang her Provencal ballads was a farewell entertainment to the visitors who were leaving Castelbrianza the following week. The captain had begged that no more guests should be invited to the chateau. For the remainder of my stay, I want to have you to myself, Madre Mia, he had said to his mother. And he spoke the truth, for not even to himself would Gaston de Rohan have confessed that his chief longing to be rid of the restraint of strangers was prompted by a desire to see and know more of Christophe's mademoiselle. In the afternoon of the day on which the last of the guests had departed, de Rohan sauntered through the park towards a plantation of trees beyond, in search of Monsieur de Beauregard and his governess, who he had been told were in the woods. It was not long before he spied the pair. Christophe swinging lazily in his hammock, and Azarel seated on a mossy knoll under the shade of a wide-spreading walnut-tree, her bonnet on the ground by her side, her fingers busy with her lace pillow, on which she was making a collarette to be given to Madame on her birthday. The cripple's voice reached Gaston, who had paused to look at the picture in the autumn-tinted glade, and the querulous tone showed Monsieur de Beauregard's temper to be what Jacqueline would have called woven in the cross-grain. "'I will not read any more of my fables to you, Mademoiselle Azarel Montu. I am much fatigued. Nay, more, it is your turn to amuse me. Lay down your work, will not you, and sing to me? Your lace must needs have grown a league in length." With a laugh, Azarel obeyed. Putting aside her pillow, she sang him one of his favorite songs, a quaint barcarole full of curious trills and flourishes which were the child's delight. Knowing his taste in that line, Azarel merrily improvised a number of spirited shakes and quavers not to be found in the original composition. "'Bravo!' shouted Christophe, clapping his hands, as the singer, after a rush of silvery ripples, ended in a peal of laughter at her own performance. "'Bravo! It seems just as if the nightingales had come back for a good-bye concert and had all gone crazy in the middle! Bravo!' "'And now,' said his governess, resuming her work, "'if you will read aloud the fable of the grasshopper and the ant, you will find, Monsieur de Beauregard, that the moral of all this is that, if I sing all the autumn, Raymond, I shall be hungry all the winter.' Christophe laughed derisively, then, book in hand, looked earnestly at Azarel. "'I have been cross-tempered many times this day, yet you have not scolded me once, Azarel. Jacqueline would have.' Rising, the girl went to him, and softly laid her cheek against his. "'Como,' she said, half tenderly, half lightly, "'know you not, then, that little Christophe's, who cannot run about and play like other boys, and yet for the most part are wondrous good and patient, do not deserve a scolding except perchance once in three years?' Christophe laughed again, and his good humor now completely restored, he was about to read, when the trees which enclosed the mossy glade where the two had established themselves were pushed aside, and Monsieur de Rohan appeared with a grave apology for his intrusion, and an appeal to be allowed to remain for a little while. "'I am sure to be cross-tempered if you send me away, whereas were I to stay you would see that I could prove both useful and ornamental,' he pleaded. And taking the book from Christophe, he fulfilled his promise by reading aloud with inimitable spirit several of La Fontaine's humorous word-pictures. "'Bravo, Gaston! Your reading is well-nigh as good as Azarel's singing!' cried Christophe. The girl laughed at the boy's frank compliments, but the bright color in her cheeks told that her appreciation had been no less than his. "'I hear from Christophe that you and he are fond of reading, Mademoiselle,' said the young man, closing the book at last. "'We must have more poetry and prose afternoons, now that we are alone at the chateau. May I ask, Mademoiselle, whether you know Dante's incomparable vision?' Fearing his disapproval if she spoke the truth, she hesitated. The next she answered, low but firmly, "'Monsieur, I do not like the Divina Commedia, the portions, that is, which I know. The imagery, the language, they are grandly beautiful, but the poet speaks not the truth.' Gaston looked at her inquiringly. 
monsieur, he is not true to God, nor to the Bible. You will remember, monsieur, that I am a Vaudois. The Vaudois do not love what contradicts the Holy Scriptures. She half expected to hear his scornful laugh, or to see him turn away in displeasure at her presumption, but by way of answer he repeated from memory one or two of his favorite cantos from the Paradiso. Mademoiselle, he said, after a pause, somewhat disappointed with Azrael's unresponsiveness, you followed the Italian, did you not? She smiled. Oh, yes, monsieur. To us, Vaudois, Italian is as familiar as French. I enjoyed the poetry and your repeating of it, but— she stammered and hesitated, feeling uncomfortably that something more was expected of her, and distressed to seem uncourteous. Nevertheless, you do not like the poem? She shook her head. Monsieur de Rohan, were I to believe Dante's Paradiso to be true, I should not want to go to heaven. In the heaven of the holy scriptures there is no queen save the bride, the Lamb's wife, she who is the true church of God. Dante sees in his Paradiso the lovely one who is Mary of Nazareth. In the Father's house there is indeed one who is altogether lovely. He is our beloved, and we are his, and we love the thought of going to heaven, because there we shall be with Christ, which is far better. I should feel utterly lost and lonely among Dante's crowd of strangers, if I could not see my Saviour save from a far distance as one of the three glorious mysterious orbs of light. Ah, if that were so, heaven would not seem home to me. The young girl's voice trembled with passionate feeling, but now, overwhelmed with sudden confusion, as she caught de Rohan's gaze fixed upon her, she blushed and stopped. Pardon me, monsieur, I was forgetting myself to speak so boldly. The captain bowed. There is nothing to apologize for, mademoiselle, he said, and apparently interested in the subject, he led her on still further to explain her views regarding the future life. It is beautiful but strange, your fancy about death, mademoiselle, he finally remarked, a mere stepping from a lower room to a higher, and at once the child is at home in the father's house, no purgatorial fires barring the way. Such a belief, methinks, would remove all cause for fear or even for regret because of the shortness of life. According to your remarkable creed, a life cut off in its prime enters even in the very act of death into fullness of life. His light tone jarred upon Azarol, but when she glanced gravely at him she caught a look that made her wonder whether his would-be carelessness was but assumed to hide a deeper feeling. For a few moments he sat in silence, absently watching the pretty play of her fingers among the flying bobbins. At length he roused himself. Mademoiselle, he said, speaking in an undertone, lest Christophe, deep once more in his beloved La Fontaine might overhear. I believe my mother's library contains a book which would be entirely to your taste. It is called A Dialogue Between Pope Julius II, A Familiar Spirit, and Peter at the Door of Heaven. The piece, a clever satire exposing the abuses of the papacy, afforded much amusement in France a hundred years ago when it was actually tolerated on the stage. The name of the writer never transpired, but it was popularly believed to have been from the pen of Erasmus. Erasmus! The word was a mere exclamation of scorn, and Azarel's lips curled as she spoke it. Gaston was amused, no less than surprised. Como, mademoiselle, was not Erasmus the greatest, inasmuch as he was the first of the reformers? Cert he paved the way for Martin Luther, the hero of your Protestantism. Yes, she returned, a fine scorn still in her voice. It was true what the monks said of Erasmus. He laid the egg that Luther hatched. And they might have added that if the hatching had depended on Erasmus, the Reformation would never have seen the light of day. A friend of my father's in Germany sent him a copy of some of Erasmus's letters. All of them were clever, some were grand, even noble, but not a few were what the German professor called masterpieces of the sublimely contemptible. It was so evident from these letters that Erasmus stood aloof from Luther, not because he did not agree with him, but because he feared for himself and the church to which he clung, the bursting of the storm he felt sure would follow if Martin Luther persisted in fighting to the death against error. 
But Erasmus, in the very letters to which you refer, deplored these same errors as much as did Luther. If any man upheld freedom of thought, if any man advocated the purification of the church, if any man wrote in defense of the truth that was Desiderius Erasmus, mademoiselle. Unfortunately, your reformer, monsieur, loved Desiderius Erasmus more even than the triumph of the truth. He wrote to a friend that, although he knew reforms were needed, he would rather see things left as they were than that there should be a revolution leading to one knew not what. Others might be martyrs if they liked. For his part, if trouble came, he feared he should do like Peter, and so to the last he refused to read Luther's writings. He seemed to be afraid that he might in honesty be obliged to approve of them, and that his approval might bring him into danger. "'Are you not somewhat hard upon the poor man?' asked Gaston, still amused at her vehemence. Azarel blushed. "'Pardon me, monsieur. I am remembering my father's indignation when he read aloud those letters of Erasmus to my mother. But I ought also to remember how he said, "'Poor Erasmus. He was a great man, and with a grain or two more of unselfishness he would have been a hero. He said, too, that he believed Erasmus's life would not have been to himself the miserable disappointment it was throughout, had he but had the courage to risk his comforts, his fame, ay, even his life, in taking his stand by Luther's side in the forefront of the battle. "'I say again, mademoiselle, are you not hard on Erasmus? After all, a man living in dangerous times has need to be prudent. I, too, am for liberty of conscience and religion. I hold with Erasmus that no man should be persecuted for his opinions. But in declining to rush into the arena of church politics merely to lose his life through provoking a battle of words, Erasmus was simply exercising towards himself the mercy and consideration he was at the very time thus eloquently claiming for his fellow men. "'Pardon me, monsieur, but it was not a question, methinks, of rushing into the arena or keeping out of it,' protested Azarel. "'To Christ's soldiers had come, then as now, the call to arms. The enemy was in the field. The fight had already begun. Erasmus was there, whether he willed it or no. But he refused either to carry the colors or to wear the uniform of his captain. I warrant, Monsieur de Rohan, that it is not the way the knights of France are wont to war against the enemy in the field.' "'I see, mademoiselle, you hold that in no circumstances is prudence the better part of valor,' laughed the captain, but the laugh, even to himself, sounded a little forced. The next day was wild and stormy, a rough reminder that summer had gone and that winter was already on its way. Outside the October wind blew in angry gusts, driving the rain in swirls about the gardens, beating tempestuously against the windows of the chateau, and drenching with sudden shower-baths the statues in the court. But within doors all was warmth and comfort at Castelbrianza. A great fire burned in the hall, Christophe's couch was drawn up to the cheery blaze, and close by sat Madame de Rohan and Azerel, at work and expectant. The trio had not been waiting many minutes when they were joined by de Rohan. Madame's a monsieur, he said, a mixture of grave and gay in his tone. Seeing that our planet Earth presents but few attractions to us this afternoon, I propose that we, all four of us, should straightway set forth on a journey to Paradiso. Nay, mademoiselle, have no fear, this to Azerel, who had glanced up apprehensively. On this occasion our guide will not be Dante Alighieri. Como, monsieur de Beauregard, you too, he exclaimed, shaking his head reprovingly at Christophe whose forehead was puckered into a frown of disapproval at sight of the bulky roll of manuscript under the captain's arm. "'You look ugly and wicked enough for—for—eh bien, for one of Commander-in-Chief Lucifer's volunteer artillerymen.' On the instant Christophe was all attention. "'Ho, ho!' he cried. "'Is it bad men fighting against good men?' Gaston nodded. "'And are the bad ones properly punished to death?' asked the cripple. To this the captain assented cheerfully. "'Then I shall like to listen.' And the boy— carefully slipping his book of fables under his pillow, prepared with bloodthirsty anticipation to enjoy himself. Dragging forward one of the heavy carved chairs within the charmed circle about the fire, de Rohan sat down and unrolled his manuscript. 
Madre mia, he began, addressing his mother, but his gaze the while furtively directed towards the still figure on the opposite side of the hearth. Her head was bent over her lace pillow, and in and out among her wavy brown hair the firelight diligently wove threads of gold. I told you that last year how, when our regiment was in the Low Countries, I was laid down with fever for nigh upon eight weeks in Rotterdam. Eh bien, in the house where I lodged there was an English refugee, one of England's noblesse in more senses than one. I shall never forget his kindness to me. He was one of the truly good and truly happy, and yet he had sacrificed his all, his fortune, his family, his life, for he was slowly dying, all for the sake of what he called the truth. It was as well, perchance, that these weeks came to an end at last, for Sir Edward, he was a Protestant, would soon have made a heretic of me, and cert that would have been the spoiling of a good papist. Madame de Rohan glanced at her son with a quick look of anxiety. His forced lightness of tone did not deceive her. She knew that underneath there was earnest in his words. With the abruptness of one who had been betrayed into saying more than he intended, the captain left the subject of creed and turned to another. Sir Edward had been five years in exile in Holland, and to help while away the time he had occupied himself in translating into French a book of poetry written by a countryman of his, one John Milton. When we parted he gave the manuscript to me. The piece is called Paradise Lost. I have read but a few pages, but truly, and if the rest be like unto these few, I warrant we shall find the whole amazing fine reading. De Rohan's expectations were more than fulfilled. Paradise Lost proved a great treat to his audience. The afternoons were looked forward to with impatience by the ladies, and their appreciation was proved by the fact that they oftener than not forgot to continue their work in the interest of listening. Even Christophe, raising himself on his elbow with his head leaning on his hand, would follow with delight the story of the great war in heaven, while ever and again Gaston, who was very mindful of the little fellow, would pause to explain some passage which was above the boy's comprehension. When the sixth book was reached, and Satan, with his infernal machines, bid fair to overthrow the hosts of God, Christophe covered his face with his hands and groaned aloud. The roar and thunder of those hellish legions were horribly vivid, not only to the child's excited imagination, but to those of his elders. And when the tide of battle changed, and in fancy they saw God's angels tearing up the hills and mountains by the roots, and hurling them upon the foe, Azarol, in the reaction from odd suspense to exultation, was ready to join in Christophe's shrill shout of triumph. As often as might be, Léon Montu added yet another to the group of Gaston's appreciative listeners, nor did the young Vaudois prove himself the least shrewd contributor to the discussions of the great epic which invariably followed the afternoon readings. Not unfrequently it happened that the talk was prolonged until the hour for the evening meal, whereupon de Rohan would exert his authority, not always unsuccessfully, to prevail upon his friend to remain to supper first and music afterwards. And thus the days passed pleasantly and swiftly on, and the time drew near for Monsieur the Captain's departure to rejoin his regiment, now under orders for the German frontier. The coming parting was in everyone's mind, yet none, not even Christophe, seemed to care to speak of what was now becoming the uppermost thought with all. Throughout these last days Azarel appeared to be scarcely herself. Moods of forced gaiety alternated with fits of strange silence, while into her eyes at times would come a hungry wistfulness like the pathetic look of a dumb animal in pain. As for Madame Eloise, she moved about the house incessantly occupied in seeing to her son's outfit, making arrangements for his future comfort, attending with scrupulous exactness to every detail of the business matters which she talked over with him and the lawyer from Turin, and although each day saw her grow more thin and worn-looking, her voice and manner were marked by the old impassiveness, which Azarel now knew told of an inward struggle to maintain an outward calm. And Christophe, determined to show himself the man he fain would be, shed his tears in secret, and talked less and less when Gaston was by. One evening, it wanted but a few days to the one fixed for the captain's departure, the family party, of which Léon formed one, were gathered in Madame's boudoir. 
An attempt to drive away dull care by the help of music had signally failed, and Léon, with a sudden inspiration, proposed that Gaston should read over again some of their favorite passages from Paradise Lost. The suggestion was a happy one, and there was not one of the group but felt the better and the stronger for listening to words that carried their thoughts above themselves and earth's cares, right up to their Almighty Father, the Omnipotent, in whose stupendous schemes of creation and redemption the plan of each one of their little lives had from all eternity had its place. "'I shall leave this with you, Léon,' said de Rohan, proceeding to fold up the roll. "'A roving soldier is no safe custodian of things valuable,' and with a smile he handed the manuscript to his friend, who accepted the trust with a quick hand-clasp and flush of pleasure. "'Tiens!' Gaston exclaimed, observing that the cripple had watched this scene a little wistfully. "'Tiens!' he repeated, slapping his velvet doublet now on one side, now on the other. "'That reminds me of a somewhat valuable curio which Madame my mother found today when she was overhauling my belongings. It is a relic connected with no less a personage than the great Condé.' After a search, the captain at length produced from the depths of one of his pockets a small packet. Opening it, he held up what seemed a silver crown-piece. "'See here,' he said, and by a skilful touch of his finger upon the edge of the supposed coin, he adroitly opened it, disclosing the fact that it was counterfeit. Hidden in this tiny box, a written message was conveyed to the prisoner in the fortress of Bossen from his friends outside. Into the same secret receptacle the prince slipped his reply, then flung the make-believe coin across the moat, where it was picked up by a friend in waiting on the further side. Voila, little man Christophe, I shall leave that with you as your keepsake. You will take better care of it than I should, I trow. Apparently debating something with himself, the child held the little silver box in his hand for a moment in silence. "'Gaston,' he asked at length and doubtfully, "'may people do what they please with a keepsake?' De Rohan nodded assent. "'Echo, if you will allow me, I shall give this to Michel Roussier.' Without noticing the surprise both of Azerol and Léon, Christophe continued in what he considered a confidential aside. "'Michel Roussier is a kind man. Twice he gave me a present of a pretty picture. He said it would perchance entertain me while Mademoiselle Montu accompanied him for a walk in the woods. But although I always remembered to give Azerol the message, she was never able to go with him, which was a pity, was it not? I felt sad for Michel Roussier, for he was vastly disappointed each time, and I have often wished that I might give him a present, something he would truly like. I asked Monsieur Broussel, and he told me his nephew Michel had a, a, ah, yes, a moldering mania for ancient dilapidation worthlessness. And this queer box, I vow, would be just exactly what would mightily please him for his Museum of Strange Things. I thought at first I should like to keep it for myself, but you know I have La Fontaine for my keepsake. By all means, give the coin as a solace to Monsieur Roussier, Captain de Rohan responded, with a heartiness that was truly surprising, considering the unfavorable opinion he had formed of the gentleman in question. At that moment the clock struck nine, and rising, Léon reluctantly announced that he must go. A silence fell upon the little company. There was an unwillingness to say farewell, which told that the thought of a longer parting was again casting its shadow over their spirits. "'Just one last song,' pleaded Gaston. "'Who knows, but this may be our last opportunity,' he urged, looking at Azerol, and there was that in his face which silenced the refusal which had risen to the lips she was finding it difficult to steady. "'Then let it be the traveller's psalm,' said Léon, and although he tried to say it cheerily, even his manly voice was a trifle husky for the thought would press itself upon him how he would miss the friend who had been so much to him that summer. Madame Eloise spoke never a word. She had drawn a little apart, and her face was shaded by her hand, so that only Christophe, who was nearest her, could see through the tears that dimmed his own eyes that hers were wet. Hand in hand the brother and sister stood while they sang the familiar psalm, with which they had been wont to speed the parting guest in the old presbytere at Ponfra. I to the hills will lift mine eyes. Gaston de Rohan stood also, and was fain at last to bow his head, 
moved, he could scarce have told why, by words and music that seemed to burn into his very soul. Little he guessed that the bright constellation of promises grouped together in the last verse was destined long afterwards to shine forth when, in his hour of darkest, sorest need, he was groping blindly for some standing ground on which to stay himself. The Lord shall keep thy soul, he shall preserve thee from all ill. Henceforth thy going out and in, God keep forever will. End of chapter 11